0: All right, here we are, back with another podcast. Uh, it's been a while, so let's get on with uh, some uh, some interesting reader questions. Welcome, brothers. This is Didact, and this is a domain query, not a didactic mind. We'll get to that uh, probably next week. But uh, domain query, Ask Didact Anything Day number two. This is the second time I've done this, and uh, it's really good fun for me. I imagine it's probably amusing for the people who ask me questions as well, but basically once in a very great while when I feel like phoning in uh, a podcast or some post where I really can't be asked to sit down and write down stuff, um, I typically just stick something in the Telegram channel, Uh, you'll find a link to that in the description box, uh, asking readers to respond with questions. And I will then go forth and respond to those questions insofar as I am able to got a pretty good battery of them today um, we've got let's see one two three four five six seven questions I believe so let's get started we'll go from you know first come first served uh, oh before we do that though uh, as usual um, basically make sure you check out the stuff that I have in the links below particularly for VPN now It so happens that I've been using, um, a VPN quite heavily of late to do web scraping. It's not just, VPNs aren't just for like downloading pirated movies or sailing the high seas, if you will, uh, if you want a more polite version of that term. But in fact, it's actually quite useful if you're trying to do serious industrial scale work of some kind. Now, in my case, I happen to be working on a web scraping project just for shits and giggles, really. Which involves scraping some 570,000 different records from the web, from a particular supplier catalog, and assembling the data into a data frame, which we can then post into a database of some sort. Um, spare you all the techno babble, but essentially doing that from a single IP address is not a very good idea because if the tech admins on the other side are even halfway competent, they'll quickly realize there's a massive spike in traffic coming from someone and they can pinpoint your IP address and block that. Whereas with a VPN, it's much easier to do this sort of stuff because a lot of websites dislike it when you scrape their data. They really don't enjoy people writing Python web scraping programs which go in and scour their websites and download the data and store it in a tabulated format. So they implement anti-scraping measures. You know, They put in JavaScript, which modifies the websites on the fly, which makes things a lot more annoying when you have to try to download the data. Believe me, I've been there. Um, they put in uh, IP blacklists, which stop you from being able to do this stuff. But things like Surfshark and Atlas VPN allow you to get around these. I mean, it's all perfectly legal. There's nothing illegal about this stuff. It's entirely... Uh, within your right to, if the website has data up in public, it's entirely your right to go and collect it. Uh, depends on the site's policies, obviously, with the robots.txt file and all the other stuff that happens behind the scenes. But how do you think Google, for example, indexes websites? It sends out spiders which crawl all over a website, scrape its data and plug that into Google's algorithms. So the way that these big tech companies manage things is through precisely the things that they want to stop us from using. But with a VPN like Surfshark, you can avoid that. Check out the links for Surfshark and Atlas VPN. Also check out Incogni, where, which is a Surfshark product, and a very good one, actually. It's essentially a way of erasing your data from the web and of keeping you safe particularly in a world where your passwords, your privacy, your personal data can be sold on the dark web, and the dark web is a real thing, this is not a joke, it's not some ridiculous episode of Law and Order New York or whatever it was, where they pretend like they know what they're talking about. No, it's an actual thing whereby there's a a large section of the web that is not indexed by search engines so you can't find stuff on it but there are ways of finding things on the so-called dark web and it is not a, a particularly nice place there are lots of shady things that go on uh, around that part of the web and uh, you can you can end up with your personal details your credit card information your passwords your uh, your entire life history essentially on sale to the highest bidder which is not a nice feeling at all. Incogni gets rid of all that. So check out that uh, in the links below. Right, getting back to what this is all about, which is answering user questions uh, for ADAD number two. So starting with Dan, which European country is in the worst shape socially and economically when which would you expect to see collapse first? Uh Are we not counting Ukraine? Oh yeah, okay. we we aren't because Ukraine isn't a country. So uh, if it's not Ukraine, then it's a very good question because you'd need to essentially look at the countries with the lowest birth rates and you know the lowest total fertility rates um, and the highest debt levels by country. Uh, and if you look at the Western world, there's a map that you can find uh, of total fertility rates by country in 2022. So if you look at um, Statista, for example, you'll find that the countries with the lowest fertility rates are countries like Malta, Ukraine, of course, 1.27, and Italy, 1.29, Spain, 1.29. This gives you a pretty good idea of where the collapses are likely to come. Uh, It's going to be somewhere in Eastern Europe and in the MED. The northern countries, the so-called northern European nations, are better off, relatively speaking. Now, it's important to understand the the concept of the demographic event horizon. The future belongs to those who show up for it. That's axiomatic. So when you have countries where the TFR is below one6 typically that country never ever ever recovers um russia is something of an exception because if you look at russia total fertility rate um it's actually on its way back up and it was uh you know 1.5 according to uh statista you know a year ago but according to uh, macrotrans it's actually su- substantially higher. It's about 1.8, 1.82, something like that. So, you know, the, the issue, th- there are issues with measurements here. Uh, but the thing is, if you look at various European countries, they tend to have very poor total fertility rates. And so that is a very good measure of which countries are likely to collapse. Um, If you look at debt levels as well, if you look at indebtedness, then you've got a very serious uh, potential crisis. And if you look at uh, if you look at the TFR as well from the CIA World Factbook, and you look at the European nations, um, you'll typically find you know uh, Russia is doing pretty well. It's about According to the CIA World Factbook, it's got a TFR of 1.6 in 2023, macro trends 1.8. Uh, but the data are pretty consistent for countries like Italy and Spain. Uh, if you look at the, um, the TFR for Italy, it's 1.29 according to Statista and 1.24 according to the CIA World Factbook and about the same for Spain as well. Um, macro trends by comparison, so the, the point I'm going through here is that um, basically uh, if you're looking at, it, it really depends on which data set you're looking at, but really effectively uh, the, the total fertility rate is a major measure, measure of which country is likely to collapse next. But it's not the only story, you also have to look at indebtedness. Now, Russia has a very, very, very healthy fiscal picture. 15% or so debt-to-GDP ratio. I mean, nominal. Uh, very, very easy for them to pay off all of their debt, especially all of their external-facing debt, of which they really don't have a lot because they um, essentially have what they call OFZs, which are effectively instruments that, their own domestic borrowers or domestic um, firms and and consumers buy and invest in. They're Russian coupon-bearing bonds and they pay off over a period of 10 or 30 years. Uh, actually, OFSEDs, I think, some of them have maturities, quite a lot of them have maturities of five years. So, Russia's fiscal picture is extremely healthy. But if you look at the rest of Europe, it's very bad. If you look at most of the sort of Mediterranean European countries, they have really pathetic um, fiscal pictures. If I had to pinpoint exactly which country I think is likely to collapse in, in the West, probably Italy. Because Italy right now faces a very severe demographic crisis, which they can't really immigrate their way out of. Unlike the United Kingdom or the United States, they can't uh, pay off their debts easily, and they have a very, very shaky political system, and a major sort of political and structural divide between North and South Italy. Uh, I don't know much about Italian culture. I visited it once for about four days, so it's nowhere near enough to make a comparison. And that was, you know, it was a it was a ski resort in Swiss uh, in the Italian Alps. Beautiful place, but not enough to make any kind of judgment about its economy beyond a certain point, what I can say having been in Italy is that the Italian economy is very heavily overleveraged, and it doesn't have the population dynamics necessary to sustain long-term production and it's a very heavily financialized economy is very dependent on banks, uh, on high-end manufacturing and on debt to sustain the Italian level or lifestyle it's not going to work long term so I would expect to see Italy collapse pretty quickly uh, I don't think they have a robust financial system or sector I think the euro has been nothing short of a disaster for the Italian economy it's really uh, pushed up wages and prices to a level that is unsustainable and they can't devalue their way out of, the, out of trouble like they did before when they had the uh, Lira in circulation. Not that it helped them very much because, of course, the moment you try to devalue your way out of trouble, you introduce inflation, which is, again, another huge problem. Uh, The Italians don't have the discipline or the fiscal or economic capability to get out of um, a general Western collapse. So I would say the most likely candidate is Italy. Now, what about the United States? I personally don't expect the US to last uh, beyond 2033. And I, I would say it, it's actually looking increasingly shaky that the US would last beyond 2025 at this point. I mean, that's how bad things are right now. I don't think the next election is going to be free or fair. I don't believe that Trump is, has a snowflakes chance in hell of winning because the Democrats the will just rig the system uh, again and steal the election, just like they did last time. So I don't think there's any hope for the US to get out of this. But the US is a very big country. It's a very wealthy country. It's got tremendous natural resources, and it has these very powerful natural barriers on either side of it called the oceans. It doesn't have to worry to anything like the same extent of invasion and of conquest that Europe does. The Europeans by contrast don't have these natural barriers and while Italy and Spain are mostly isolated uh, and prosperous they are isolated and prosperous largely because they can count on American money and influence to defend them. When that goes away and America turns inwards and collapses it will fragments really into a couple of different governments and undergoes uh, Civil War 2.0, which I expect to happen within the next five years, thereabouts, very roughly speaking, the European countries won't have any hope of kind of recovering from that. If you look at um, the 2008 financial crisis, Greece basically collapsed, Iceland basically collapsed. In this coming crisis, I expect Greece will probably muddle through. I mean, it's not—it's not structurally very much stronger. It's just that they don't have quite as much stupid stuff going on within Greece. Uh, But Italy and Spain, I would expect, will seriously collapse, Uh, and quite possibly because of how dysfunctional Italy's body politic is, I'd expect them to break up into warring states once again, like you know, undoing everything that happened since Garibaldi's time. Um I I, I think I do think Italy's going to be in a lot of trouble. But I don't think the paradoxically, I don't think the collapse will be anywhere near as violent or as vicious as it will be in the United States. So the answer to the question I think is I expect one of the smaller European count well, you know, geographically smaller European countries to collapse. I expect it will probably be Italy or Spain. I expect that's going to happen because of demographic and debt reasons. I do think that the United States will eventually collapse in, you know, five-year time horizon thereabouts, and it will result in the fragmentation and breakup of the U.S., but not like the, the complete destruction of the idea of the American state. I think the United States of America, the USA, will persist in some form it just won't be anywhere near as powerful and it won't be like the red states just break away you know kurt schlichter in his um in his uh people's republic series talks about this Uh, he he basically paints this sort of alternate universe picture in which the united states breaks up into the usa which is all the red states and the people's republic which is the blue states on the coast and a couple in the sort of um Northern border with Canada, and he reckons that's how it 's going to go down i don 't think it's going to be anything like that neat because if you look at an actual electoral map of the United States and you look at the county level, you realize just how intermingled everybody is so i don't think it's going to be anywhere near as neat and tidy as people like that believe uh, next question Supreme canon says uh, asks. Prigozhin said there are other PMCs operating alongside Wagner. Gazprom has a PMC. Shaigu has a PMC. Is Russia really that freewheeling, militarily speaking? The answer is no. There is, there are a number of uh, other private military contractor corporations or private military companies in Russia. Um, if you go look it up, you know, you will find, uh, Wagner is just one of several, but they have quite a few others, so if you look at uh, Wagner, they, they are one of the big ones, but they're not the only one. Um, there are, there's like the Tchaikovsky group and uh, a couple of others, uh, so for example, um, there is, I mean, Wagner is of course the really, really big one and they operate globally but the thing to understand about wagner is um they're not actually uh, a private group exactly if you really dig into the details if you really really go into the details what you'll find is they firstly um wagner wagner's existence predates that of um Prigozhin's time with the company. Uh, the second thing is that the people who incorporated it actually have strong links to the old Soviet GRU, uh, which is currently a different directorate, and uh, the Russian military. The Russian criminal code explicitly prohibits the use of the Russian military for specific ends. The Russian military cannot be present in other countries, um, you know, for for pay, and it cannot ex- engage in extended overseas deployments without the permission of the host country and without the express approval of the Russian president. It cannot involve itself in other people's wars, that sort of thing. But Putin, being a very pragmatic man, understands that there are good reasons to have people like wagner pmc out there so there are a couple of such companies if you look at um, available lists out there so there's wagner there's vegasy enot which is kind of hilarious because that's a play on words in russian enot is is, uh, uh, russian for raccoon (laughs) believe it or not Uh, trash panda and a couple of others which exist. Uh, I know. I think uh, Tchaikovsky is another PMC that uh, is is one of them out there. Uh, there's uh, if you go look at, uh, unfortunately, the Queef Post. The uh, there is there are quite the there are quite a few of these things. So, for example, yeah, you know, in theory, Gazprom has its own PMC called Staff Alliance. Supposedly, um, there's the RSB group. There's Yenot or Enot, uh, ISIS hunters, Tsars, wolves. Um, for some reason, the Kweif post reckons that Ahmad is a PMC under the command of Kadyrov. That's absolutely not true. The Ahmad battalion is their, effectively a special forces group of the Chechen military, and the Chechen military is subordinate to the Russian military. So uh, I don't know where they get this nonsense from um you know supposedly you have pmc's like the private military medical group the moran security group uh llc pmc tavrida the Tavrida battalion uh the redoubt pmc shield pmc patriot pmc uh storm or storm and and supposedly all of these connect up to the russian ministry of defense and uh redoubt And S.H.I.E.L.D. have connections to uh, Gennady Timochenko, And uh, Readout has a connection to Oleg Deripaska. And uh, there's PMC Convoy. And obviously Wagner is the big one. So yes, there are lots of other PMCs. That's true. Um, Is Russia really that freewheeling? No, it's not. I mean, it's very important to understand this. These other PMCs... Fulfill very specific and special roles. They don't, they are not just, you know, the way that the United States has private military contractors like Academy or which used to be Blackwater basically. It's not like that. These PMCs fulfill a very specific role which the Russian military itself cannot legally and operationally fulfill. The thing people need to understand is that before twenty twenty two, the Russian military was almost exclusively designed and built for defense of the motherland. It was a defensive army. It was not designed for overseas operations, extended overseas operations uh, and substantial sort of force deployments away from home. If you actually go and look up Russian bases overseas, you'll find that the Russians have startlingly very few bases. They have several in the Ukstan republics, you know, they've got one or two, they've got a few in Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, uh, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, etc, etc, etc. Because these are former Soviet republics, so they still have the infrastructure available to house troops like this. But they don't have anything like the American infrastructure of overseas bases and naval stations and air force bases. They don't have anything like that. They don't have the ability to operate in those environments. So the logistical capabilities of the Russian military are largely domestic. When Russia needs, for whatever reason, to provide support to other countries, or essentially needs to go in and kick some butt on its own, it can't do that with the infrastructure and force assets it has on hand, because it's not designed for that. That's where companies like Wagner come in. Again, keep in mind, Wagner is essentially an extension of the Russian military. That's a fact. It's effectively part of the Russian military structure. Its commanders are all ex-Russian military. Its special forces trainers are all ex-Spetsnaz. Its training facilities are largely Russian military training facilities. Its equipment is all top-of-the-line Russian military equipment. So... The idea that it is somehow buying hand-me-downs from the Russian army and doing so at a discount and kind of pretending to play at war is, is simply not true. Every, at every level, Wagner and most of its equivalents elsewhere in the, in, in the Russian military, uh, or in, I should say in the PMC universe in Russia are by and large Russian-made, Russian-sourced, Russian-funded, and they, again, fulfill a particular role. So it's not a freewheeling environment at all. Uh, I hope that answered that question. Uh, yeah. My old buddy WB asks, can I borrow a dollar? Uh, uh, what was that old line from Popeye? I'll gladly pay you back on Tuesday. Uh, may I borrow a dollar to buy a hamburger for which I'll gladly pay you back on Tuesday? Uh, yeah, sure, as long as you agree to pay me back any day other than Tuesday, mate. AK, okay, so this one's interesting. um Long question. When people are willingly rushing toward their demise and moral decay, is this a sign of the coming Dark Ages? uh Answer, yes, it is. To clarify further, I understand that we had difficult times in the past because people were misinformed, but is this the time that St. Anthony prophesied the masses are not just misinformed. They truly convince themselves that modern, lunatic, and satanic rules slash practices coming from the elites are good for them. Uh, okay, so this is straight out of Romans 1. Okay, uh, if you go look up Romans 1, that's everything you need to know is right there. And if you go look up Romans 1 to uh, 18, I think, 18 to elsewhere. Uh, yeah, God's wrath on unrighteousness. This is the the whole of the chapter. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Uh, Your Bible may be a bit different, but it's up to you. Uh, Romans 1 from verse 18 onwards. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to their impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women, and were consumed with passion for one another Haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Again, straight out of the Bible. I don't, I'm not familiar with the prophecies of St. Anthony. I'll have to go look them up. Um, but what I can say is looking at, um, the words of Romans chapter one, it's very obvious what's going on. The pattern throughout the Bible is extremely clear. God sets forth a, a, a bevy of rules which people are supposed to obey. And they say, yes, yes, of course we'll obey them, we agree. Then over time, they start disobeying them. Because the thing is, when God sets forth rules, he wants man to follow these rules of his own free will. He wants man to come close to God. And the, the, the whole story of the Bible is, it, well, it's several things, but one of the things that the Bible really is shows the search of God for man. It's not really the other way around. It's actually not. It's the quest of God to repair and and redeem His broken creation, which broke itself. And it is the story of God's constant attempts to reach out and heal His creation, but it is also the story of God's wrath against the rejection of His creation toward its creator, So what you're seeing now is entirely a function of God saying, okay, I've been patient with you. I mean, God is infinitely patient and merciful. Well, how do I explain this? He is infinitely patient and merciful in the sense that if you come back to him and you repent, he will forgive you and forget. He will do that. But he's not infinitely patient in the sense that he's not going to wait for you forever to, to come to him. He's going to give you a certain amount of time, and then he's going to say, that's it, you have had your chances. I'm pulling the plug. And when he pulls the plug, he really yanks it out very hard and very, very painfully. And the result is the complete destruction of the race or the group that committed these sins. So people, the, the, the question from AK is, Not actually entirely correct. I mean, with my due respect to you, it's not entirely correct. We did not have difficult times in the past because people were misinformed. It was because they were deliberately, they deliberately chose to be ignorant. Romans 1 makes this unquestionably clear. People are without excuse to look at the natural law of the world, and if they conclude based on natural law, that something other than what natural law actually says, they are without excuse. If you look at um, the, the talks by Father Chad Rippiger of the Catholic Church, I don't agree with the Catholic Church about a lot of things, but I will readily admit Father Chad Rippiger is an excellent speaker and uh, logician and explainer of things. He does a really great job of just breaking down uh, the, the demonic realm and everything that goes on there. And he really explains things beautifully. He has a very eloquent style of speaking, which I really enjoy. If you listen to him talk about looking at the world from a, what he calls a Thomistic point of view, uh, through the lens of St. Thomas Aquinas, who was, he, he was and remains one of the greatest minds in history. Because what did St. Thomas Aquinas do? He was the one who managed to fuse Aristotelian logic with Christian morality. It's something that had never been done before. And before that point, there was, to some extent, a a, a real war between logic and faith. There was. I mean, it it was very difficult to reconcile the two. But St. Thomas Aquinas, because of his genius, managed to do it somehow. I haven't read Summa Theologica, so I can't comment on how he did it. But what Father Chad Ripico points out is that St. Thomas Aquinas manages to get back to the the commandments of God, the moral authority of God, just using natural law, without ever referencing God the Creator, God Christ, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit. He doesn't do that. He only uses natural law arguments to point out that there are such things as mortal sin, and there are such things as grievous error that even the most pagan and abominable peoples could recognize was a failure of judgment but they chose to believe otherwise anyway. So this this notion that people are misinformed is again with my due respect to you not correct. People are informed, they were informed before, they are informed today, they just choose to look the other way. They choose to believe that things are not as they should be. They've they've convinced themselves that their immorality is correct. And again, look at Romans chapter 1, it says so right there. The the people's Their foolish hearts were darkened and God essentially let them believe their own lies, their own bullshit, because that was the instrument of their judgment. They, These people will be judged because they chose to believe lies and they refused to pull back and accept God's truth. Those of us who have pulled back and who have accepted God's truth understand that we can't Just say, oh, well, we didn't, you know, we didn't know. We didn't have an excuse. See, the thing is, the interesting, the the fascinating thing about the Christian faith is that the mercy of God to humans is um, astonishing. It's astounding. The degree to which he is capable of forgiving us and giving us another chance is amazing because we're stupid. That's really the truth of things. We're stupid. And it takes us a while to figure out what it is that's going on. The way we know things is different from the way that angels know things. When angels were created, again, this is the doctrine of the Catholic Church, but I think there's a lot of truth to it. The way when angels were created, they they came into existence with complete knowledge. I mean, complete They knew everything, past, present, and future, related to their specific task. So, if you have an angel who's created for the specific purpose of tending gardens and, you know, giving mankind uh, knowledge of aesthetic beauty related to plants and animals, right, that angel has complete encyclopedia I mean, beyond encyclopedic knowledge of every Plant that has ever existed, that ever will exist, uh, right down to the DNA and RNA and the, you know, the, the, the chemical and atomic compositions of, of these, these, these creations. It's astonishing what they know. They have no excuse for rejecting God's task and God's purpose for them. We, on the other hand, stumble blindly and we gain through experience and through learning from others and through Banging our heads against a wall and then having an epiphany and realizing oh, that's what it is That's what we're supposed to be doing. That's what the true law is. We look I mean when we're born. We don't really know um, It's a bad idea to put your finger on a or your, your hand on a hot plate uh, We do it 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 burns it hurts like hell. We realize oh, we're not supposed to do that um, It takes us time to gain experience and wisdom through touching and feeling and hearing and sensing So we're stupid. But at a certain point, that excuse of stupidity runs out. So God is in, in, in unbelievably merciful because of our stupidity. But at a certain point, he's going to say, okay, I've given you enough credit. And then he yanks the plug. He just, he, he he just says, that's it. Done. And ultimately, we don't have an excuse because we can look around us and, you know, once we reach the age of reason, the age of majority, we can sort of get a feel for what is right and what is wrong, again, based on natural law. And Father Chad Ripperger gives an excellent example. Almost every single one of us, including you, if you're listening to this podcast, and I don't mean, you know, the, the guy who asked the question, but anyone who's listening to this podcast, almost certainly you have committed mortal sin in your life. Well, not almost, absolutely certainly you have committed mortal sin in your life. And... Father gives a very very good uh, example. Ninety eight percent of Christians admit to shacking up, right? I've done it. Um, lots of other people have done it. You've, if you're listening to this, you've done it. Um, Catholics aren't very much better. They're like ninety seven percent. And if you go around to every single one of those couples and you ask them, you know, wouldn't you be better off being married, or shouldn't you do something about making your relationship permanent? Every single one, according to him, will say, yeah, you know, we, yeah, we probably should. I think that's a bit of an exaggeration, but not much of one. It's not every single couple, but most of them will say that if they've been together longer for, you know, a year or two years, they'll all admit, yeah, we should do something about making this permanent. We should consecrate it in the eyes of God and just get on with being a married couple uh, and... Therefore, we would be under the twofold authority structure, the, the man under God and the wife under man. And that's how it should be. Um, that level of understanding exists in each of us. And when we reject it, uh, we reject God because we reject the natural law, because God is the creator of the natural law. So the specific answer to your question is, like I said at the beginning, yes, it is. It is a sign of coming dark ages. And there's no getting away from it. And the thing to understand is, as horrible as this sounds, these dark ages are necessary. They're a cleansing. They're a judgment. They're, they are a correction that has to happen. We could have avoided it just by being a bit less stupid, by refusing to believe the lies about, you know, global homopedo Satanism, Pharisee pharis Satanism, actually we could have avoided it by being a bit more accommodating towards God and accepting Him into our hearts and into our lives. There are many cases in the Bible where God honors nations that may not necessarily believe in Him, truly believe in Him, but at least speak His name with respect and dignity and honor God in the sense that, They claim to be doing the right thing and the righteous thing under the authority of God, and they give him his due respect, and God honors that in return. And he makes them victorious in battle, even though he knows that in their hearts, the rulers of these nations aren't necessarily really on his side. He basically, he honors, he honors the, he honors the, the, the fact that they they pursue the letter of the law, if not the Spirit, if you know what I mean. It's very important to understand that. God is willing to use us in ways that we don't necessarily understand to achieve His ends. And whether we like it or not, we are all tools in His hands. All I can say from very painful personal experience is that if you willingly submit to become the tool that He needs you to be, life will be a heck of a lot easier than if you resist. That's all I'm going to say on that subject. Uh, GW, is the current rank round of U.S. bank failures the beginning of the end of the U.S. financial system, or will they be able to kick the can down the road a few more years? Uh, yes. I. My personal opinion is, yes, it is the end, the beginning of the end of the current financialized approach to things. And the reason I say that is because if you look at what happened after the 2008 GFC? Bank balance sheets effectively supposedly underwent a lot of repair and restructuring and supposedly banks became a lot healthier. But actually what happened was they managed to do that only by boosting their tier one equity and by doing, and they did that only by buying very safe, supposedly very safe, uh, American treasury securities. Well, the problem is those treasury securities, they bought them in an era of quite low interest rates. And that means that while they're very, they have very liquid balance sheets and they've reduced their leverage and all that, they've reduced their leverage from 30 to 1 to, let's say, 10 to 1. And on top of that, because in, um, I believe it was in, during, during COVID basically, the Federal Reserve eliminated the uh, reserve ratio requirement and essentially just said, You can park your money with us, and that's good enough. You don't need to keep a certain amount of cash on hand just in case your depositors come knocking. Because they eliminated all of these requirements and because of the Fed raising interest rates quite, actually fairly rapidly um, over the last six months, the United States economy is in very, very deep trouble because, number one, these banks all have large holdings of U.S. Treasury securities. And those treasury securities amount to a substantial backstop of their asset base. So again, remember what I've said in the past about how banking operates? In very, This is like you know banking 101. I mean, this is like the idiot's guide to banking. It's more complicated than this, but not by much, actually. If you put your money in a bank, you are lending the bank money, effectively. I mean, if you think about it, that's obvious, right? Because you get paid an interest rate to house your money at the bank. So, you are a liability for the bank. Your deposit is actually a liability for the bank. The bank lends out your money as an asset. It it uh, basically gives your money as a loan and gets paid back interest. So, that to them is an asset because they get paid for it, right? In the same way, a treasury bond that they buy from the U.S. government is an asset. Now, it's effectively the same as cash because the U.S. treasury market is so deep and so liquid that if you sell a treasury bond, you get cash immediately. I mean, it's instant. Uh, a treasury bond is regarded as essentially equivalent to cash. It's the same level of quality, liquidity, transferability, fungibility, etc., etc. So when you have a treasury bond floating in the market, uh, and you buy it and you put it on your balance sheet as a bank, it counts as part of your asset base along with your loans and other um, things for which you receive money. What happens when the interest rate used for discounting those cash flows goes up? Well, the value of those cash flows goes down, which means that the present value of the bond goes down, which means you lose money on your asset base. But your liabilities don't change because you still have to pay the same liabilities out to your customers. And those are um, quite short-dated liabilities, actually, because your deposits can be yanked at any time. So you have this fundamental problem of long-dated assets versus short-dated liabilities. Your assets are declining in value, your deposits are not. Your liabilities are not. So you've got your equity shrinking very, very quickly. Because remember, the, the, the accounting equation, E equals A minus L. Equities equals assets minus liabilities. If your assets go down, your liabilities stay the same, your equity goes down. Once your equity hits zero, meaning, you know, your assets are equal to or less than your liabilities, you're bankrupt. And in reality, that's the situation for many, if not most banks in the United States today. I don't want to alarm anybody, but that's, that's effectively the truth. I mean, once you strip out the effect of, um, of leverage and debt and, and all this other fun crap that's in there, most banks in the united states are actually bankrupt Uh, i'm just look i'm just telling it like it is and for that matter most banks in the west are bankrupt because if you actually ran a proper stress test on their portfolios and interest rates went from 0.25 percent to six percent which they are now then most of those banks would be insolvent because they have so many treasury bonds on their books that collapsing them down would wipe out the, the the value of their asset base so that's what we're seeing right now what's the way out of this well there there are really only two choices number one cut interest rates hard to allow the economy to kind of reflate but this is an environment where you have 10% inflation. I mean, I that's officially, it's, you know, according to the US CPI, the, the BLS uh, CPI statistics, uh, inflation in the United States is like 5.56% a year. That's bullshit. It's absolute bullshit. The reality of inflation. So if you go to, uh, what's his name? John Williams Shadow Stats. Um, uh, Shadow Stats. So if you look at government inflation... And if you go to shadowstats.com and you look at what the inflation rates are right now, I mean, it's just, it's horrifying. It's genuinely, it's absolutely horrifying. Uh, he does a comparison of the, um, the 1990 based, um, sort of CPI metric back when it, back when it was calculated in the 90s. Against official, uh, CPIU, which is sort of, uh, the, the, like, core inflation rate. Uh, the CPIW, I think is the, uh, no, sorry, that's a different statistic. My, my bad. Uh, but there's a, there's another statistic, which is like a a broader gauge of inflation. But if you look at, um, the latest inflation readouts, they're about 5.5% or thereabouts, uh, in, I think, March of 2023, April 23. Um, the unofficial, like the, the shadow stats equivalent is more like 8.2%. And if you go back to the 1980s equivalent, you know, back when they, uh, the BLS, before the BLS monkeyed with it for the first time, the real inflation rate is more like 12 to 13% year on year. And it spiked as high as 18%. And that's the reality for most people is much, much worse than the official statistics let on. True inflation is probably closer to 20 to 25%. And if you look at the prices for certain hard commodities, you know, lumber, uh, steel, um, various food commodities, eggs, bread, milk, that sort of thing, they've gone up easily 40%. If I look at the price of steak, I'm not in the US, but if I look at the price of steak down at my local supermarket, um, that's gone up easily 40% in two years that I've been here. Uh, if I look at the price of eggs, that's gone up probably 50 60%. If I look at the price of milk, that's gone up 30% most likely, and probably more, about 40% by now. So the price of food is skyrocketing. So if the Fed cuts interest rates from where they are now, from 5.5% back down to you know 1% or half a percent, which is what it's going to have to do, to avoid these bank failures, that is going to send inflation up past 20% officially. I mean, they're going to do their best to massage the numbers, but it'll be insane because there are so many other structural defects within the U.S. economy that it can't manufacture stuff quickly enough at a low enough price in time to counteract this problem. And now you have these idiots in charge, these 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 complete freaking morons in charge at the fed at the u.s treasury department at at the 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 chamber of commerce the the you know the bureau of labor and everywhere else in the u.s government the department of labor and they're all they've all got these you know these these brainwave policies of let's impose sanctions on china really you want to impose sanctions on the world's largest manufacturer at a time when you can't manufacture anything i mean these people are just they're so stupid they They don't understand second and third order effects. They don't, they don't get it. They, they really, they have no mathematical background. They have no understanding of the real economy. I know I sound like Grandpa Grumpus, like, you know, a a broken record here, where I just keep going on and on and on about the same stuff. But the level of delusion and stupidity in Washington, London, Paris, Brussels, um, Uh, Berlin and all the other Western capitals run so deep and it is so pervasive. You know, you just throw up your hands in despair because these people are too stupid to survive. But their policies are leading towards an economic disaster. And there's nothing you can do to stop what's coming. So option one for the Fed is cut rates really, really hard. Option two is to keep raising rates and thereby cause bank failures, and then have to cut rates anyway. There's a very good indicator, which I talked about in a, a previous podcast, the 2s-10s spread, or the 10s 2 spread, and I, I think I posted about it as well, where when you see the, the spread between the 2-year rate and the 10-year rate come back um, up into positive territory, so if it, if it goes into negative territory, if the curve inverts and then goes back up into positive territory, the, the, the crossing back into positive territory, is when you know there's a recession coming. And the length of time it's spent below the zero line indicates how bad the recession is going to be. In this case, uh, you know what, let's look it up. 10s, uh, 2s spread on the yield curve. And if you look at the 10-year minus 2-year constant maturity spread, it's still negative. Still negative. And it's been negative. Uh, since basically basically, sort of July of last year, and it's still negative to this day. It's almost a year in negative territory. You know what's going to happen when it's been that long in negative territory? We're looking at a biblical recession. We're looking at a massive global depression. That's what we're looking at. So understand when I say this that There is no more road, we're reaching the end of the road right now. If you combine all of the effects we're seeing right now with de-dollarization, sky-high inflation caused by these insane sanctions against Russia and against China and other countries. I mean, if you look at Russia, Iran, Cuba, China and all the other countries that are sanctioned, if you lifted those sanctions and let them actually produce stuff and sell them, a lot of the problems we're seeing right now would disappear very quickly. If you combine that with, again, the de-dollarization trend that I mentioned earlier, and the move away from the dollar, because other countries can see you can't trust the U.S., you can't do it. It's, it's stupid to trust the U.S. right now. It's insane. You'd be crazy to park your money with the U.S. right now. If you combine all of these factors, you're looking at a major pullout of money from U.S. banks. You're looking at U.S. banks themselves being basically insolvent, and you're looking at a level of... Trouble that we've never seen before. Nobody's ever seen this before um, So I hope that that answers that question. I, I answered it at some length actually uh, Before I get to the last question, I'm actually gonna interject here because the last question is kind of cute So I'm, I'm not gonna... I'll, I'll save that one for last um, Randall E6 asks... Uh, as I've been browsing, the, so he's basically looking to become. He's a long reader and friend of the site. Uh, he's been heavily involved in Monday stuff from time to time. Uh, as I've been browsing the various forms available for international teachers, I've noticed that certain countries and areas are being deemed hardship locations. "Quote unquote." Said locales are easy to get jobs as they get less applicants and thus have to be a bit more open-minded. One of the areas mentioned is Central Asia, e- e.g., uh, Mongolia and the Ukhstans, which I mentioned earlier. And I personally feel drawn to the Old Silk Road. Do you have any experience of the Central Asian locales at all? I do not. I've never been there. However, what I will say is these parts of the world tend to be quite rough. Um, they're not a good place for a Westerner to be. Particularly places like Turkmenistan and Kyrgyzstan to a lesser extent. Uh, but Turkmenistan definitely. Tajikistan you want to avoid. Uh... I know of the Tajiks and the Turkmens through my time in Russia. They have a very poor reputation. The Tajiks are considered basically borderline barbarians by the Russians. Uh, they're, they're muzzies and not particularly clever ones uh, at that. Very violent and given to very bad behavior against, um, against white people. So avoid Tajikistan if you can. Avoid Turkmenistan if you can. Uzbekistan is not so bad uh, from what I've heard. If you, if you really want to teach internationally, Outer Mongolia is probably not that bad an idea. Ulaanbaatar is supposed to be, uh, I don't know about a nice place, but it's interesting and it's right sandwiched right between Russia and China. So you'll get a lot of experience with both cultures. And I know that there are several uh, big international schools. big, relatively speaking, international schools in uh, Ulaanbaatar that are looking, or Ulaanbaatar, however you pronounce it. Um, yeah, the funny thing is I can actually, because I can read Cyrillic and a lot of Mongolian, not all of it, but a lot of Mongolian is written in Cyrillic. I can actually read Mongolian. I don't know, I have, I don't have the first clue what the hell it means, but I can actually read Mongolian, which is uh, very strange, <laughs> but only if it's written in Cyrillic. Um... With respect to where to live in those countries, Mongolia is probably your best bet, but just be prepared for very harsh winters and a very odd culture. Um, avoid, like I said, seriously, avoid the Islamic republics. You're not gonna like it there. Uh, these places are not healthy for Westerners. Uh, I mean, Islam in general is something you should stay away from, and my recommendation is to stay the hell away from the Islamic countries of the old Silk Road. But, uh, if you're, if you're keen on teaching internationally, then yeah, I mean, Eastern Europe is still, I would say, a pretty decent location for that sort of thing. Not great. Not anymore, but decent. Uh, Thailand is a great place to go. I definitely recommend checking out Thailand. Um, Vietnam is another great place, a uh, lot of Southeast Asia is still, I would say, quite, uh, quite, quite a good area to go to, and economically will prosper in the coming years. And finally, another question from, I believe, it's Dan, yes it is, uh, <laughs> I see the combat courts as well as plenty of dogs in your posts, are you a cat or dog person and why? I am a dog person. I am very much a dog person, and the reason I am a dog person is because I grew up with a Golden Retriever Labrador mix, uh, who's my best mate from the time I was born to the time I was 10, and he died uh, shortly after my 10th birthday. And I've never had a dog since, I've always wanted one, but I've never really had the geographical stability to warrant a dog, but I am very much a dog person. I love dogs, I get along extremely well with dogs. Um, I, I adore big fluffy dogs. I don't consider the small, barking, stupid little dogs to be dogs at all, especially not chihuahuas, as I just consider them to be mutated rats. Um, you know, good for drop kicking, and that's about it. Uh, I'm not saying I would, I'm just saying that's, that's what they're for, but um, I don't like chihuahuas. I love uh, spaniels. Uh, I love uh, Irish setters. Huskies are a bit, yeah, they're, they're overly dramatic. But Malamutes are a lot of fun. They're, they're big, huge dogs. Uh, the what's it called? The 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 bugger I, what, the, the Samis, the Samoyeds. Completely drawing a blank. The Samoyeds, they're they're beautiful dogs. You big white fluffy floof balls. Uh, those things. Uh, but my favorite dog is, of course, the golden retriever. I mean, I I, I just adore goldens. They're, they're the best dogs in the world. I absolutely love them. And yet, so here's the interesting thing: I'm very much a dog person, but cats generally like me. I don't know why. I don't really like cats very much, but cats seem to like me. I and because you know, I'm I'm kind to animals most of the time. I'm just I like animals. I I treat them reasonably well uh cats when when i'm sitting around and they they approach me they they generally find me you know they, they they i'm i'm generally very friendly towards them uh i particularly like maine coons um which are the most dog-like of all the cats they're very friendly very inquisitive uh they're huge as well they're just enormous cats and uh they're, they're a lot of fun to kind of play with and and, uh, and, and tease a little bit. But, uh, main coons, I, I, I genuinely, I have a lot of time for main coon cats. And uh, overall, I'm just, I like animals, but I am very much in favor of dogs. So yep. that, that's my opinion on the subject. And that is all the questions for today. Thank you very much for persisting all this way through, uh, for Ask Didact Anything Day number two. And we'll get around to another one of these at some point in, well, eventually. Um, and hopefully uh, those answered your questions. If you have any further follow-on questions, let me know and I can address them in a later post. Some of them will, uh, some of the questions I get are quite detailed and quite involved and they require a lot of exploration, much more than I can do in a written post. So I'm very happy to do a podcast um, to explain those through, but uh Thank you again. This has been a lot of fun and I will try to get around to a podcast next week if I have time. But uh, many thanks and all the best. Uh, this has been Ask Didact Anything Day number two, Domain Query. And this is Didact signing off.